you doing this morning? It's a great song. Well, there was this husband and wife, and uh, they were in bed, and they'd been married 50 years. 50 years, and the wife turns to her husband, and she says, you know, when we were young, you used to hold my hand. And so the husband slowly stretched out his hand, kind of irritably, and they finally found her hand, and he was holding her hand. And then the wife said, you know, when we were young, you used to snuggle up against me. And so he slowly moved his body until his body was up next against his wife's. And then the wife said, you know, when we were young, you used to nibble on my ear. And suddenly the husband throws the covers off and he jumps out of bed and the wife kind of hurts, says, where are you going? And the husband mumbles, to go get my teeth. (laughs) Yes, we do age. Like I said, I don't write them, I just read them. Well, this morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at a church this morning that began to toy with the world. And so I've entitled the message this morning, Compromise. Father, I just thank you for having Trevor and his family with us. May you continue to bless him and the Gideons International. We're so thankful for the ministry that they do. I'm thankful for each person that is here this morning. You brought them. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bless them. Most of all, you would bless us with making Jesus more real in our lives. Oh, how we need Jesus right now more than ever. And so I'm just thankful right now this morning for the word of God. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you are welcome here and that you would come in a powerful way. And I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head. And I would truly speak your words and not Frank Ray's words. God knows we don't need that. And so now I just thank you for what you're going to do here the next several minutes. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Skip, can you play the video? Some might say I'm only interested in the big things, but that's not the case at all. I love the little white line. I encourage the second glance at that girl. I hope you take that extra drink. One little compromise. Sometimes that's all I need. I am Sam. Kind of hits you between the solar plexus, doesn't it? Did you hear about the guy who couldn't decide which side he wanted to fight on during the Civil War? So he put on the coat of the North, the trousers of the South, and guess what? He got shot from both sides. <laughs> I want you to know this morning that compromising is a very dangerous game, and we're going to see that the church at Pergamum began to play that game. But before we look at the church at Pergamum, I just want to say something very quickly about the seven churches of Revelation. Skip there. There you put up the map, and there you see the seven churches of Revelation, of course. That is the Roman postal route, so there was a method to the madness of Jesus, the horseshoe that you see. We've looked at Ephesus, and we've looked at Smyrna. We're going to look at Pergamum this morning. We are not going to look at all the seven churches of the Revelation because there's quite a bit of similarity. For example, that the church at Ephesus stands alone. It's the doctrinal church. And it had a lot right going for it, but it had one severe problem. And Jesus said it was a huge crack in the foundation. They had lost their first love. And he said, repent. See how far you have fallen from your love for Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you, once you lose your passion and your love for Jesus, your life just begins to crumble. And then we looked at the church at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna in Philadelphia are very similar in that they're both persecuted churches. 
And it's amazing, Jesus only had commendation for them, no correction. See, it's amazing what persecution will do for you. It gets rid of the dross. It gets rid of those people who are just playing church. And now we move to Pergamum this morning, and Pergamum and Thyatira are like churches. They are what we call the worldly churches. They are the churches that began to compromise with the world. And you're going to see that Jesus has some harsh words for the church at Pergamum. And then finally, you have the church at Sardis, and you have the church at Laodicea. We call those the dead churches. They have the appearance of being Christian churches, but yet Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you are dead. You think you are alive, but you are dead. And to the church at Laodicea, he says, you are lukewarm, and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Those are by and large, by the way, they think, see, here's the problem with those churches. They think they're saved, but they're not. And that's a very serious charge. But, so we turn our attention this morning if you have your Bibles, to the church at Pergamum. So we look at Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. And we see this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, Pergamum was the capital of Asia. Skip, can you put up the picture? It was, uh, there you're going to see an artist's rendition of Pergamum. Pergamum was actually a very beautiful city. It sat up on a hill. It was a city upon a hill. In fact, it was one of the great cultural centers of the ancient world. It at one time had the best and the greatest of the libraries of the ancient world. Over 200,000 parchment rolls resided in the library of Pergamum. Yet Jesus, we're going to find out, says this is the city where Satan resides. Can you believe that? It's the city where Satan resides. Now, Jesus Christ always gives, you know, a little biography about himself. And here's what he's got to say to the church at Pergamum. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So Jesus identifies himself to this church as the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Why does he identify himself that way? Well, as we're going to see as we look at the letter to the church at Pergamum, the problem the Pergamites had is they were allowing false teaching, false doctrine in their midst. And Jesus said, I am the word of God. I have the sharp two-edged sword, and I'm going to ask you, I'm going to demand of you that you apply truth to the air in your situation before it's too late. And then, you know, Jesus, like I said, he always gives the positive before he lowers the boom. It's a great thing to do when you're, you know, dealing with husband and wives. Always give the positive first. And then, you, you know, you take the knife, you zing it in there, and then you twist it, you know. So you first got to give the positive, and then you go with the negative. And so Jesus does that. He, he gives the positive. Listen to what he does say about them. He says in verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Can you imagine that? Jesus says that Satan lives in the city of Pergamon. There's a number of reasons, I believe, why he says that, but we're not going to get into it this morning. It's enough to know that Satan is living in the city of Pergamon. Remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at all times. He has to localize somewhere, and for some reason, he just enjoyed the city of Pergamon. So you know what that meant about the city of Pergamon? It was a cesspool. These people were living in a cesspool. 
Now, the reality is, is Satan, by the way, is in control of this world. If you look at the New Testament book of Ephesians in chapter 2, we are told this. Skip, can you put that up? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's object of wrath or judgment. Do you realize that Satan is in control of this world? God is allowing him to be in control of this world. And that's why this world is in a mess. And it's going to continue, by the way, to get messier. And then the Apostle Paul writes these words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he said this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan blinds unbelievers from being able to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, that could deliver them from their strongholds and addictions and could truly set them free. And it's so tragic. And like I have said, I told you that America is under judgment. And because we're under judgment, you're going to see the Holy Spirit continue to pull back and you're going to see greater and greater deception occurring. And the result is people's minds are going to be twisted. They're going to call good evil and evil good. And they're not going to be able to see less and less the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How tragic that is for us. But you know, I don't want you to miss something here. Because the commendation to the Pergamite believer is really quite great. Jesus says that these believers are living where Satan lives. That means they're in a moral cesspool. They're in a religious cesspool. Now, you think about the average person. The average person, the average believer might say, you know what, I'm out of here, Jack. There's no way I want to live here. I'm going to go find my, you know, self, a, a nice country house with a white picket fence in the country somewhere. I'm going to get away from all of this. But I want you to know that the believers in Pergamum and Jesus congratulates them for not doing that. You see, Jesus is the general and he has the right to place us wherever he wants to. Do not move. Do not leave your job. Do not leave your home just because you want to. You're there because he placed you there. Do you understand it? You are there to be a witness. And he congratulates the Pergamites for staying in that cesspool because God knows they need the light. That city needed their light. And you're right where you are because you're the person of the hour in your neighborhood and in your place of work. Be that light. You know, just this week, and I do want to read this because it is important. I I received this from... uh, uh, you know, uh, email, and I appreciate those email. Keep those coming. Keep those cards and letters and money coming. <laughs> but I re- it, it comes from the Christian Post, and here's what it says. Listen to this now. People are worried. The news is pretty unnerving. People who seldom watch the news are watching it now. Our national leaders are speaking more ominously than, than ever. We've heard them speak. A U.S. senator said Ebola is one of the most explosive, deadly epidemics in the modern times. In Africa, the number of cases doubled in just the past month. You feel fine for three weeks after you've been infected. It's so easy 
to spread. And each day seems to bring more sobering terrorism warnings. We have porous borders where killers could cross. A terrorist army growing exponentially, many with passports that would open the door to Western nations. Grim stuff. But for those of us who belong to Jesus, we should be hearing our spiritual phone ringing. You hear it? Ring, ring, ring. It's a wake-up call from God, and it's no time to let it go to voicemail. Because God is calling to say, if you're ever going to do something about the people who don't know Jesus, do it now. Hidden in these disturbing headlines are three life-changing messages of God. Listen to this now. Number one, it's time to live for what others are dying for. You can go online and graphically see the price our brothers and sisters around the world are paying for their allegiance to Jesus. Torture, rape, crucifixion. We have a faith that's paid for in blood, first by Jesus, then by countless Jesus followers from the first century Colosseum to crosses today. Should I be intimidated into silence because of what talking about Jesus might cost me? I might be called a name, marginalized, rejected, disrespected. If I won't pay that puny a price, I should be ashamed. The old hymn asks, am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to his own cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Spiritual silence is no longer an option. It can cost someone Jesus. It can cost someone heaven. Secondly, our hearts hearts are now open today. Listen to this, because the world is crazy It's a bunch of lunatics running around. It's going nuts. God calls us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, it tells us in Ephesians 5, 16. This this is opportunity time because hearts that are usually looking inward are suddenly looking upward towards heaven. With storm clouds in every direction, folks are feeling vulnerable, unsafe. In Bible's words, like the tossing of sea, which cannot rest, there is no peace, Isaiah said. These are Jesus' times. He's the one who speaks to the storm, to the human heart. Peace, Jesus says, be still, and do not let your hearts be troubled. Finally, number three, we have a hope that the people are starving for. That's what God says will interest people in my Jesus, especially now. But only if I tell them about his unlosable love proven on the cross. There's never been a better time to tell my hope story or your hope story now. In Jesus, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. The author finished this way. No more silence. No more letting fear win. No more wimping out on sharing my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I say amen to that. Perhaps you don't know of a pastor by the name of Bud Robinson. Actually, he lived in the early 1900s. He had a small country church, but every morning, Bud Robinson would pray this way. He would say, dear God, Bud would cry out, give me the backbone as big as a saw log and ribs like the beams of the floor of the church. Put iron shoes on my feet. Give me a rhinoceros hide for skin, a wagon load of determination in my soul. Help me to fight the devil as long as I've got a tooth and then gum him to death until I die. God bless him and may his tribe increase. You know, everything though was not rosy in the church at Pergamum. Jesus gives this correction. 
He said this, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You don't want to hear that from Jesus. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The problem with the believers in Pergamum is that they were tolerating false teaching in their midst. And I said several weeks ago that doctrine matters. Teaching matters. And I'm going to say this mantra over and over. Bad doctrine, bad teaching leads to bad behavior, which leads to being a bad witness for Jesus Christ. You know, the teaching of the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans kind of went like this. They said, you know, we're now living under grace. By the way, we've always been living under grace. I wish people would understand that. Then they said, we are no longer living under the law. All sin has been forgiven, and therefore I live in freedom, and I can live as I want. Now, there's a lot of truth there, but there's also a lie. And the end result was some of the people in the church at Pergamum begin to live licentiously. They they began partying. They began to go to immoral plays which were being held in the Pergamum Amphitheater. They were sleeping around. You see, some of the believers in the church at Pergamum began to look like the world. They became worldly and they were giving Jesus a black eye and Jesus said, quit giving my church. Quit giving me a black eye by looking like the world. Let me see if I can just quickly illustrate this. In Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is a great psalm. It's called actually the royal psalm. Psalm 1 is actually the Bible in microcosm. And in Psalm 1 and verse 1, we are told this. It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now in hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, we call that a progression. The progression is walk, stand, and sit. Walk, stand, and sit. And let me tell you, it all begins with blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You just, by the way, do not fall into sin. That is what Psalm 1-1 is saying. You just don't begin to have a hardness of heart and turn away from Jesus. It's a progression. You know, many years ago, a man came walking into my office one day. He was unannounced. And he looked terrible. And he sat down and he identified himself as a Christian. And he said, you know, I had one of two choices. I could have gone to a bar and got drunk or I could come to see you and talk to you. Now, I took that as a compliment. And the man suddenly puts his head in his hands and he begins to weep. And he said, I don't know how it happened, but I'm in an adulterous relationship. (laughs) You know, you know, and, and I, I, I understand that I'm not the most soft man or merciful man, but I just wanted to grab the man and say, are you kidding me? You just didn't fall into adultery. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, it starts by walking in the counsel 
of the wicked. My guess is you begin to form relationships with ungodly people at your place of work, perhaps. You know, and maybe then you went out to a bar, maybe a sports bar, and began to have a drink, maybe one, two, and then maybe you saw a pretty waitress, I don't know, a woman, and you began flirting. And, uh, you know, things just began to happen from there. And then I said, you went from walking in the counsel of the wicked, I said, my guess is, is then you began to stand in the path of sinners, I said, my guess is you began probably to visit pornographic sites and maybe sites that had single women, available women, and his eyes got big, so I knew I was on track. And then I said, I I bet 10 to 1 you hardly read the Bible anymore. And I bet you your church attendance has become very spotty. And then you went from walking in the counsel of the wicked to standing in the path of sinners, and suddenly you found yourself in the seat of scoffers. You became like them. You began to even say, you know, well, this Jesus guy, you know, he's all right, but let's not get fanatical about it. I don't even know if Jesus is probably the only way. You probably started telling people that you're spiritual. Somehow, you know, I love that. Oh, I'm spiritual. And then all of a sudden you found yourself in an adulterous affair. And the man looked up at me and he said, how did you know? Are you a prophet? I swear, are you a prophet? I said, no, I'm not a prophet. I just said, I'm a seeker of truth. I I know the word of God, and I know just a little bit about human nature. You see, it all starts with walking in the counsel of the wicked. It all starts with walking in the counsel of the wicked. And so many of us are walking in the counsel of the wicked, we don't even recognize it. You say, well, what are you talking about, Frank? What do you mean I'm walking in the counsel of the wicked? Well, I'm going to ask you, what are you listening to? What kind of music are you listening to? What kind of television programs are you watching? What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of things are you reading? What kind of books are you reading? What kind of magazines are you reading? You see, we we like to believe in neutrality, in, in gray areas, but that's really not true. Either what you're listening to, what you're reading, and what you're watching is either driving you to Jesus, helping you go deeper in Jesus, helping your walk, helping you in in desiring Jesus and the things of God, or it's titillating the flesh. It's one really of the other. See, we like to lie to ourselves. We love to live in deception. Say, well, it's really just a neutral thing. No, it's not. If you stop... Just think about what you watch, what you listen to, and what you read. It's either sitting there going, yeah, it sets your heart on fire, and yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. Or it's titillating your flesh, and it's really taking you away from the things of God, isn't it? If we're really honest. And again, I'm going to tell you, it all starts. The slide starts with walking in the counsel of the wicked. Bad doctrine Bad teaching, bad information leads to bad behavior, which leads to giving Jesus a black eye and being a bad witness. And Jesus says, and we got to cut to the chase, but Jesus says, I want you to repent. You need to repent of what you're watching, listening to, what you're doing. You need to throw, by the way, these false teachers out. 
And you know who Jesus is really talking to? If you're a leader now, if you're a leader, he's really talking to the leaders in the church of Pergamum. He says, why are you tolerating these false teachers who are giving bad doctrine now? Why are you doing that? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. How can you say you love the people in your congregation? How can you say you're a good shepherd and allow them to be hearing this false teaching which is destroying their soul? How can you do that? And Jesus is challenging right now. Jesus is challenging these leaders. He's challenging us, by the way, now. Now more than ever, because false doctrine, we live in the day of false doctrine. And this is exactly where we're finding ourselves today. The church is finding itself, the American church, in bed with the world. And we are allowing false doctrine. And in fact, we live in the day of tolerance. And tolerance is a misunderstanding of grace. Grace, you know, people think, people say, well, I'm flowing in grace, pastor. I'm just living in grace. And what that tends to mean is, is, hey, it's all right. You're okay and I'm okay. We just kind of wink at a little air. And it certainly means you do not judge. How wrong can you be when someone says that a Christian is not to judge? Like I said, we have very little time here, but I just want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You got a young man, he's sleeping with the stepmother. And Paul is appalled because they're winking at it. They're allowing it to happen in their midst. And listen to what Paul says in verse 9. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world But now I am writing you that you must not associate. Now watch this, with anyone who calls themselves a brother. So someone calls themselves a Christian, but it's sexually immoral. We got this going on, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slander, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a man. We don't even have church discipline today because that's too judgmental. But what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Now watch this. Are you not, Paul says, to judge those inside? God's going to judge them. We're we're pointing the cannons at the wrong people. Jesus died out there for them. We're pointing our cannons at the people who are sinners. What do you expect sinners to do? But Jesus says, point your cannons on the inside. Point your cannons here. We need to be looking like Jesus. Otherwise, we give him a black eye. It's wrong when the church of Jesus Christ no longer practices discipline and we allow carnality and worldliness in our midst. We're destroying our witness. We're destroying Jesus. We're destroying the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I want you to repent. I want you to turn around. I want you to change your ways on what you're doing. You know, Jesus was not tolerant. Jesus was not tolerant. Jesus was merciful. But then he said to the lady, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus wants us walking in truth because to walk in truth is to walk in freedom. And Jesus wants you free. He wants me free. Then we become vibrant witnesses of him. And I just close with this. Jesus says, if you overcome, listen to what he says now, if you overcome, Skip, can you put it up? Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. To him who walks in truth. To him who rejects the air and doesn't become like the world and compromise. I will give some hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him 
who receives it. You know what that hidden man is? That's perpetual provision. Jesus says, if you, and he's given it. If you're born again, if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've seen on the cross that he died for your sins. He was your substitute. He went to hell for you and me. And he imputes his righteousness and he gives us a new nature in the Holy Spirit. If that's happened to you, then you have everything you need. You have a new nature, you have the Holy Spirit, and you can live in truth. You don't have to live in lies and error. He wants you free. God wants you free and living in holiness. And he says, to him who overcomes, who does that, that's a picture of eternal life. You can't believe what awaits you when you die and you're translated and you're in his presence. He will perpetually provide for you. And then he says this, I'm going to give you a white stone. You know what that is? That's the victor's stone. That's the entrance party into the marriage feast of the Lamb found in Revelation 19. And we'll look at that much, much later. Father, oh, does this message speak to our hour? Because we find ourselves in the midst of compromise. We see the church becoming worldly and we no longer at all are a city on a hill or a light. We just look like them and we're as defeated as they are. I would ask right now as we sing this final song, Holy Spirit, that you would do business for us. Some of us really need to repent and allow the Holy Spirit. But repentance is a beautiful thing because if we repent to the conviction, then we find healing and forgiveness. And so I just ask even now, there's going to be a tremendous cleansing and a tremendous renewal now as we allow you to search our hearts. And I ask for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.